That's not in my sermon notes. Well, good morning. I hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, we're moving into Lent quickly. It's uh, coming quickly this year. And uh, this morning, I want to kind of rehash a little bit and talk about the flow of quinquagesima. Quinquagesima, roughly 50 days. It's not really 50 days, uh, but I want to talk about these things. And I think I gave a handout uh, so that those of you who like it in your hands, but I think that when he clicks the button, there's the collect. So uh, this morning, we're going to look brief. I just preached on Bartimaeus the blind man a few weeks ago, but we're going to look briefly at 1 Corinthians 13 and that, and we're going to look about it sort of in the flow of the church year, of what the church and the Holy Spirit have been trying to teach us starting from Advent. So, O Lord, who has taught us that all our doings without charity or without love are nothing worth. Well, when is that? Well, we, Jesus taught that, but explicitly Paul expands upon that in 1 Corinthians 13. So it's in the scriptures, and we're going to look at that in a few minutes. So send thy Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit's interchangeable word, send the Holy Ghost uh, and pour into our hearts the most excellent gift of love. So can we get to the end of the sermon at the very beginning? The main thing that we want to be praying and fasting for over the course of Lent is that God would give us more love. How's that? So you say, well, we're fasting. And, all, we, well, and often we talk about the things that we need. I think someone's playing the uh, tuba someplace. What is that? Oh, is it an airplane? I was like, we got a band. We got a band. Uh, all right, sorry. Sound, it sounded strange to me. All right. So we're asking for God to expose and to root out those things that aren't pleasing Him, but we're praying especially that God would give us the grace of love in this season. So let me remind you that the church year starts out with Advent. In Advent, we start looking to the return of Christ. And in light of the return of Christ, we're able to pay attention well and receive the gift of the Messiah uh, sent in such a humble uh, and an improbable way uh, in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Uh, and then we get into the Epiphany season. On your notes, you'll, you'll notice that the Epiphany Sundays... Uh, teach us or taught us to fix our eyes on Jesus as our example and our helper. So throughout Epiphany, we see uh, that the gospel first, of course, to the Jews. We never want to take anything away from God's deep and profound love to his chosen people, Israel. All right. So what's amazing is not that God would never forget his chosen people. What's amazing is that he would also include in his heart the Gentiles, of which the majority of us are part of those uh, lines of Gentiles, including myself. So Epiphany, we remember that the coming of the wise men, that even pagans and Gentiles got exposed through the star, uh, the Gentile wise men coming uh, and being aware, and they symbolized all those Gentiles who also would come to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. But then Epiphany, the lessons throughout Epiphany show us what a human being completely surrendered to the Father, led by the power of the Holy Spirit, what life can look like. And so Jesus is our example, and he's also our helper. So the, the readings, if you were to go back and look at the daily readings and the Sundays, you'd say, oh, that's what the church was trying to help us to understand in the Epiphany season. Then we have three weeks of reflection where we do the watching before we pray in Lent. And the watching is self-examination. So we have Septagesima, which was two weeks ago, Sexagesima, which was one week ago, and Quinquagesima, which is this Sunday. And in each of those three Sundays, we're supposed to take an account. 
Now, we did not preach on those Gospels this year, but we did read them. And so we have in Septuagesima, we have the husbandman or the vineyard owner who goes out and he finds the workers uh, in the center of the town that are all there. That's what they would do and hope to get hired out. And he hires out people and some in the morning and some in the afternoon and some just before the end. But they all receive uh, a full day's reward because of the grace and goodness of God. And so the church is reminding us that we have been called by God many times to follow him. And the question is with that story is, have we listened to the call and have we been obedient? You know, the Lord sometimes, I mean, you, you see this particularly with funerals. At funerals, often people realize there's something about a funeral and the end of life that makes us take account and stock in the way in which we live our lives. I remember uh, a friend of mine, wasn't super close, but a friend of mine who died when I was at Wheaton College. He wasn't a Wheaton student, but he was from Wheaton and a friend of the family. Uh, his father worked with my father, uh, and he was working on a TR6 Triumph, a beautiful car, and he normally, he was a mechanic, and normally he put it up on the stands, but on this particular day, for whatever reason, he was working on it, and he had it on the jack. And the jack fell, and it crushed him, and he died. And I remember thinking, what a better person, and uh, he was, I thought, man, he, he's a far better, I hate people going to make fun of me for saying my H's, he's a far better human being than I am. Uh, and I thought, wow, you know, what am I doing with my life? Uh, all I really want to do is, is make a lot of money and be successful, and uh, it seemed incredibly shallow in light of the, uh, the shortness of life and what had happened when I was maybe 19 years old or something like that, 1920, something like that. So uh, it got me thinking, and a lot of number of things uh, began to happen, and it began to be a thing which was uh, changed the course of my life. Uh, that was one of the key things that happened in my life. And, and, and sometimes you'll see people that come to a funeral and they'll say, man, and you can tell them taking stock and, and realizing, wow. And, and then it's really easy for us to walk away and then in a week or two uh, go on and kind of forget and go back to our old patterns. The church is saying, Septuagesima, hey, the Lord has called and he's called and he's called. Uh, make sure that we're responding and we're taking God seriously. In Septuagesima, we had the sower. And Father Larry, I didn't preach on that because Father Larry had done such a phenomenal job on preaching on the sower uh, for a number of weeks. He, he maybe even preached that longer than I might have. I mean, I, that's, not, that's hard to do. But it was, it was fantastic and very edifying and helpful. And so we have in the parable of the sower, we have the reality that, that uh, depending upon the heart, the gospel's got its power. But it's the nature of the heart that receives or not that tells us the difference. So we have those who are just so caught up in the world and hardened by their own sins and their uh, lack of love for God that, that uh, they're like the hardened path and the, and the birds of the air can take the seed. And then there's the ones who say they want to follow Yeshua or Jesus, but when the difficulties and challenges and things don't go their way, uh, we find out that they're shallow in the sun of the day, in the trials of life. And there are many trials uh, of life, but if people uh, aren't rooted deeply, if their heart... Uh, isn't really for God, those things will expose us that we're shallow. shallow. Uh, and then there's those who, the good things of life, the cares of the world, all of a sudden, all the opportunities and the blessings, and, and it ends up drawing us, all the good things that God's give us, given us ends up keeping us from worshiping and, and stwor, uh, working for Jesus and serving the world that he loves, and, and we can be drawn away by that. Or uh, there are those whose heart is, the Bible calls it a good and a sincere heart, who receive the word of God and follow Jesus imperfectly but faithfully uh, and so that's the lesson as you see there so uh, what good seed uh, what good seed has been sown in our hearts and to compare what sort of crop what's the 
what's our life looking like? Are we ex- being exposed or being shallow? Are we getting distracted with all the blessings? Or are we people who are people of uh, service and love for Jesus? And, and that's the question that sex against them ask. Now we get to the big uh, movement in the third week, and now we have the gut test. Because now in 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible is telling us this is what it looks like if you have the good soil, meaning this is the kind of heart. 1 Corinthians 13, it's all about arguing the issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. You know, we tend to read Corinthians 13 at a wedding. And of course, it's, it's certainly appropriate, but the context, of course, from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, it's all about life in the church. Have you ever been in a church that they argued and bickered and uh, all the little cliques and all that kind of nonsense? If you have, I heard a couple of people, I can see them shaking their head, no, you are very lucky. You are very lucky. I grew up in churches where everything was a big deal. And it seemed that uh, certain po- uh, sort of families aligned themselves. I mean, this was, these weren't any, uh, there was not a whole lot to, to be vying for, for the little powers, very small churches I grew up in. But, but it was almost predictable that you had these people that, that made it their business to run the church and to argue with the pastor or argue with different groups and cliques and, I mean... You can see why people don't want to go to church. It's not hard to see uh, why people don't want to go to church. What's amazing is that through all the nonsense uh, that people can find their way to Jesus anyway. Uh, That's what's so wonderful and and so tremendous. So if we just look at 1 Corinthians 13, it's on the back of my sheet, but for you, so I had this in the New Living because it's just uh, sort of nice uh, to hear it this way. Now I want you to remember that Paul thought there was... (laughs) Few things more profound than the gift of tongues. Uh, Father Larry's doing a season on the uh, season, a series on the Holy Spirit, and, and he's started. I don't know if he's finished the. I don't think he's finished his teaching on tongues. But but I mean, Paul was incredibly impressed. He says in in, in chapter fourteen of Corinthians, First Corinthians, maybe about verse six, that he says that when people speak in tongues, they're able to speak by the power of the Holy Spirit to God the Father directly. They don't necessarily cognitively what's going on, but they're able to have a communication by the gift of tongues with God. And Paul's incredibly impressed with that. And yet he says here in 1 Corinthians 13, he says it's possible to be incredibly gifted, even with profound gifts, and to really miss the whole point. And uh, I think we've seen this. I'll be honest with you. I think uh, I've missed the point many times uh, and without any big profound gifts. It's easy to miss the point in lots of ways. Uh, But here we go. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but don't love others, but didn't love others, I would be only as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Corinth was a place where they created, uh, they worked in brass and bronze. And one of the things he's talking about here is in terms of the, uh, the noisy gong is that they made these sort of, not megaphones, but a sort of a uh, early form of me- megaphone that wouldn't have looked exactly like, uh, but it would be, it was brass. Uh, and it was made like, uh, maybe like this, and they would use it on stage during the Greek and the Roman plays. So they would speak and it would magnify their voice, but it was not a pleasant sound coming out of the, the bronze thing. And so it was sort of a, uh, you, you could hear, but it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't good amplification in, in certain ways. And so it, it, people often just found it very annoying to hear the sound of, of, the, of the actors and, and people in the theater using those things. So it's like a, a loud magnification. Some of us have been in concerts. Uh, when we go to India, you know, they, they get more speakers, I think, than ACDC used to have. I, I mean, and then they jack it up. Of course, they want to make it so loud that the people in the villages 
get curious and come. But it's so loud, you don't know how they're not deaf. Uh, and so well, sometimes we're going, can he be sitting in the very back? You're supposed to sit in the front. But uh, I, I mean, if you weren't deaf before you went, you could be deaf sitting there in front of those big speakers. And I mean, I'm talking about 10 or 12 ma- massive speakers on each side, and it's deafening. All right, so it's not quite that bad, but some of us know. And in some of you with hearing aids, you know how the sound bounces around here and how difficult it can be. But imagine if it was just all the louder, uh, and that's what he's talking about. Then there is also, and you see sometimes in Hinduism and other groups, uh, where they cut themselves, they use the symbols, and they just get kind of out of control in some kind of a static worship where you would believe it could be uh, spirits going on, that it's not just natural, the kind of kind of wild and crazy uh, things that are going on in the name of worship. Uh, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable, and it would be very loud with all the, the banging on the, the cymbals. And he's saying, that's what it's like, just all that stuff, but no real benefit. Uh, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, can you imagine if this morning I could just point to you and say, you know, this is when you were six, this happened, and, and your mother died, and things I didn't know, and be able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to tell you prophetic words and words of knowledge. I mean, that'd be amazing. I have been in services where God has gifted people who could do that. And I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing when people, uh, by the power of God, and then sometimes people uh, will call out people and they can tell uh, that they're sick, and then when they call them out, God heals them. I mean, it's heady stuff. I hate to say it, I prayed for gifts like that more than I prayed for love, which is kind of the point here. The point is that we've got to be careful that we're not setting the standard on the wrong things. So Paul said, if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans for the end times, Think of all the books that's been written in the end times. And if I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body. Now, I hate to correct the new living, but I will tell you, based on scholars like Gordon Fee, who is a family uh, friend of ours and uh, related uh, uh, to the Bobergs, through their oldest sister married his son, and through... Uh, lots of other scholars since. What happened in the Corinthian times, they were not burning bodies at that time, uh, which is what the New King James and the NIV stuff talks about, if I gave my body to be burned. The idea here is actually what they would do is they would be boasting because they would sell themselves into slavery and they would take the money. So they would sell themselves like for 10 years or whatever it was into slavery and let's say they would get $2,000 or $10,000, but they would take that money and they would give it to the poor. And then they were very proud of themselves because they were putting themselves into slavery voluntarily and having done this great act. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church at this time. And uh, the oldest manuscripts talk about giving their body and boasting, not uh, later manuscripts when there was burning of Christians and stuff. They, they have some that, that change. It's close apparently in the Greek, and they change it in such a way that they interpret it, giving their body to be burned. Uh, but most likely the oldest text suggests that it was this selling of themselves and then being very proud uh, for having done so. So, it says, if I gave everything to the poor, I even sacrificed my body or sold it uh, into slavery so that we could give the money, I could boast about it. But if I don't love others, I would have gained nothing. Four, love is patient. Now, this is, these are the things we're supposed to look at and say, wait a minute. If we don't look like 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13... 
That's why we have Lent. The purpose of Lent is to say, my goodness, that's not who we are. Look at this. Love is patient. I don't know about you, but I don't like reading these. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. That's actually shameful. We talked about doing shameful things. It's a much more strong term uh, than just rude, by the way. It does not demand its own way. There's a little Kuykendall trait that might have a little bit of that in there. That's a little Scotch-Irish, perhaps. Uh, it does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. I, maybe I'm the only one who feels like a deer in the headlights. It's not irritable, and it doesn't keeps no record of being wrong. And there were years where Susan and I would try to count the other person's mistakes. Can you imagine scorekeeping? But it's interesting. I always thought she was the bad one. Guess it depends who's keeping score. And she, you're not going to believe this, because I'm a priest and I'm wearing a She thought I was the difficult one. Something to think about. Listen, you'll never be happy in life if you're keeping score. If you haven't learned forgiveness and recognize your own need, some of the most bitter and difficult people, lifeless people who are the most unhappy are the people who think that they're better than the other people and are keeping score and haven't learned to forgive. And you know, until we forgive, we can't even see ourselves as we really are. Been there, done that. Uh, can get back there quickly if, if we're not careful. It does not rejoice about injustice. The idea here is that it doesn't, it's not happy when it hears news that some other person at a bigger church down the street had a problem or someone you don't like, it didn't go well for them or someone gets exposed. Some people seem to be thrilled when they find out that some minister or some person made a mistake. All right, and says, no, these are people, no, the, the love never is happy that somebody uh, messed up and screwed up. Uh, partly because we know how quickly it could be us and how grateful we are if it wasn't or weren't. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the good and the true wins out. Love never gives up. Why could love be so dangerous and so reckless not to give up? Because we know Jesus wins. Jesus wins. We know the end of the story. And so no matter how difficult it is in the short run in this life, we know who wins and who's going to take control. And love doesn't have to give up because uh, the recklessness of that choice uh, will be reinforced by the victory of Jesus. Uh, it never loses faith. Now the idea is not that it's, you know, that we're Pollyanna, you know, we don't give up, we're just some, sort of in denial. The idea is that we're focusing on Jesus and the end of the story, and so we're walking in hope and faith every day. It's always hopeful, okay? Meaning, knows the worst of people and situations that it's never too late, that everything is possible to those who believe in God, and it endures through every circumstance. Now, if that fits you well, then you get to eat sweets and carbohydrates and just chill out all Lent. If you've done well, hey, Lent is an opportunity for us to recognize if we're not these things, that we really need more grace, that we really need a lot of help, then Lent's for us. All right? And I can assure you, the Lord told me to tighten up here on Lent, so I'm going to have to really, I don't know what he's telling me, but one thing he's telling me, I gotta, it's going to be a more rigorous Lent this year than others. All right, so look down here at Shrove Tuesday. Quinca Gessima and Shrove Tuesday are connected in the readings. Here we go. 
Shrove Tuesday. This is a very important theological note. Some of you really like theology. Pay careful attention. This is a profound insight. Shrove Tuesday concerns the doctor of repentance after forgiveness. If there's not grace to see our mistakes and to be forgiven, we don't have the grace to really change. Repentance and the change. If Jesus waited till we really change everything, we'd never get there to forgive us. He forgives us, which enables us by his grace to change. All right, so let's look at a couple of things. Shrove is the old Saxon word meaning absolution of forgiveness. So what would happen is in the three weeks from Septuagesima to Kinkagesima, people would be reflecting and they'd realize, boy, I got a lot of character issues. There's a lot of issues here. So then on Tuesday, they would ring the bells at lunchtime and everybody would go in and they would spend their time repenting for their sins and receiving the grace and the absolution because of Jesus' great love. But then they would spend Lent asking God to go deeper. They would ask him, now, Lord, would you go, would you give us the grace to have a lifestyle of repentance? Shrove Tuesday is an absolution Tuesday or forgiveness Tuesday. Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, it's, a, it's, you know, it's all connected to this grace, uh, not partying and debauchery, which, I mean, is the opposite of anything connected to, to what the history of this day is about. So David's a really a prime example. David in Psalm 51, when he, he's writing about his affair with Bathsheba, uh, and he talks about that he had been born, he's been conceived, uh, in sin did my mother conceive me, all right? He talks about, he says, thou shalt purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Thou shalt wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, he reverses everything from Leviticus 14. When people had leprosy, at the very end of leprosy, if you didn't die, the leprosy would turn to like a pigmentless skin. You've seen people with acid, everything will have no pigment. It's, doesn't, it's not Caucasian, it's it's without pigment. That, that's what they called white. All right, so he said, Thou shalt purge me the hyssop, and I shall be clean. Thou shalt wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And what David's saying is, with leprosy, leprosy comes to an end, and then you get purged with hyssop, and, and you get restored to the community. You go from being excommunicated to being brought in. David says, if you don't cleanse me first, I'll never get to an end. My sin, the difference between sin and leprosy, is as, he says, with leprosy, it will stop. Then we can be cleansed and brought back in the church. He says, but with sin, it's so profound. If you don't forgive us and cleanse us, we can never get back. All right, so he verse, thou shalt purge me with hyssop, and then I shall be clean. Thou shalt wash me, and I'll be white in the snow. It won't ever stop. The corruption of the soul will never stop except for the grace and love of Jesus. So it shows that David was forgiven once, but he repented all of his life. That's why there's so many penitential psalms. It's all coming out of really, he had lots of sins, but it was really coming out of especially his sin with Bathsheba. Remember that in the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice for deliberate sin. David is the only person in the Old Testament who really got a, a profound vision that there could be grace and forgiveness even for something that he did that he knew was wrong. All right, and, and my goodness, think of all the things that we've deliberately done. Uh, so he had the insight that that was how the grace and mercy of God was. Now, we finish with this couple comments on the blind man. I, I mean, I love the blind man because uh, here he is, he's yelling out to Jesus and people are telling him to be quiet and he won't be quiet. You love that. I mean, I mean, I mean Jesus, if we'll hold on, if we'll ask and seek and knock, no matter what religious people or evil people or crazy, nobody can keep you from the love and mercy of Jesus. If you want him, he's going to give you all of his attention. I mean, what an incredible thing. 
uh, that nobody will be put off and, and nobody can get you. No church, no bishop, no pope, no, no minister. Nobody can keep you from the love and mercy of Jesus if that's what you want. So, but there's three things at the very end about verse 41 to 43, but here we go. Jesus says to the guy, he says, be it unto you according to your faith. The guy could ask for money, could ask for many things. He says, but I want to receive my sight. That's what the church wants you to pay attention with in Lent. That we would receive, that we should be asking Jesus, Lord, would you give us sight to see ourselves and to see you? The greatest thing in Catholic theology is the beatific vision from 1 John. And the idea is we will see Jesus as he is and then we'll be like him. The sight that we're asking for is that we would see Jesus in our fasting, that there would be a closeness uh, maybe not a vision, but, but, but in a sense, we would be transformed and changed in our asking and seeking of Jesus for his love, that we would be transformed by that and given it by his presence in the search. God is not hard to be found. He, he's giving us this opportunity. We're going to be judged one day how we've done with all the things God's given us. Lent gives us the opportunity to judge ourselves and to seek him now and not wait until the very end. Be it unto you according to your faith. Be specific with what you're asking for. I'm really, my main prayer this year, (laughs) Lord, I need more love. I need the things that you call, I need those things. All right, I need those things. And would you expose the roots of the other things uh, in my character that I can see? Would you expose the roots and heal them? But ultimately, if I could get more love, the bad things will be crushed. If you only pray for one thing, you pray that you'd be like Jesus in love, that you'd have a revelation of his heart and his love. It will transform you. Uh, Then also, when the blind man asked Jesus and Jesus healed him, uh, what did he do with the grace that was given? He followed him. That's the key thing. When he was healed, there was nothing that kept him. Imagine all the places of contact we've had with Jesus, all the answered prayers, all the blessings. And yet, at times, we're, we're half-hearted or even worse. Lent's reminding us, this season, we, we need to be responsible, good stewards of the grace that God has given us. All right? Grace precedes uh, deep and profound change and repentance. We must have it. God has provided. We know of all people that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And because of that, and the acceptance of his forgiveness and his grace and his life, uh, we are enabled by his spirit as we pursue him, as we ask and seek and knock. We can present ourselves daily as living sacrifices and we can become servants. And he will, as we do the littlest efforts to please him and to step out, our best efforts are always short, but as we step out, his grace gets us there. He's asking us to worship him with our best, even though our best is imperfect. It's not good enough. Your best will never be good enough, but he'll bless you. That's what grace is all about. As you reach out, he'll grab hold of you and he'll get you there. He'll change you. He'll change you. I wonder what good things God wants to give you. Primarily, what aspect of love that you could get in this Lent that would transform your life? I can think of some ones from the list. Susie says, I'm irritable. She used the word ornery, but I'm, anyway, there's one. There's others. I wonder 
what great things God would give us. He, he gave the blind man sight. Everything's possible to those who believe. What would God give you if you would seek, ask, and knock? He will hold no good thing from you. He is absolutely committed to your holiness, to you becoming like Jesus. Maybe we've been praying for the wrong things. Maybe we've been praying for gifts, or we've been praying for heroic acts. And what Jesus wants to give us primarily and fundamentally is the grace to do the thousand little things every day to serve and to love others like he did. And if we would get in line with that, who knows how all the other gifts and blessings uh, that he might have for us would come. Maybe he's saying, I don't want to mess you up by blessing you with all these gifts and other stuff because it'll end up being worthless because I want to deal with giving you the revelation of love. I really need it. I don't know about you. But, but maybe this one, pretend with me and stand as we pray going into Lent. Lord Jesus, we come. And Lord, we, we, we hear that passage, we hear those words. And Lord, we have to acknowledge that we've done a lot of stuff that's been pretty empty. And that there's a lot of love and, uh, and service, Lord, that hasn't been the way you want it to be and the way it's possible to be. Lord, this morning we come as people who celebrate and receive your great forgiveness. And in knowing that we're born again, that we're your children, Lord, that you've saved us, Lord, you've forgiven us, we ask for the grace to respond in, in, a, in a holy time. Lord, of asking and seeking and knocking. And, and Lord, as we do these little things and we give up food and this and that and we rearrange our schedules to say, Lord, you're the most important thing. And so we're giving you the time and the space to acknowledge that in a real way, not just with words, but in this season. Lord, I'm so grateful that grace always goes before us. Lord, I pray that as we come for a pancake supper, just as the family, Lord, we come. And, and Lord, that we'd really be able to rejoice in what it means to be loved first. Uh, you don't tell us to get our act together and then you'll love us. You, you love us first. So, Lord, as people who've been loved, would you give us the grace then to operate and to use our will in obedience, to, to do our very best, even knowing that it, it's not good enough, but you'll help us and you'll get us there. Uh, Lord, as we reach out, Lord, and that you love it that we're trying and that you're so pleased that our heart's desire is to be like Jesus. Lord, it's a big thing that you would change us, but you're a big God. So we thank you. Lord, I bless each one and, and myself in this journey. We, we need your help, but you're, you're there. So Lord, would, would we look back here, Lord, as a family and see that, that by Easter, you have really rooted out some things and you've drawn our hearts closer to yourself and to each other, that, that the kind of heart of service here and love would be profound, that we'd see a noticeable grace and shift individually, but also corporately. Oh, we thank you for all the good things, but we ask for more because we want to really be like Jesus. So we pray these things in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm.